If you have your Bible, which I pray and hope and encourage that you do, please open and meet me in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is where we'll start as we get ready to launch into our Advent mini-series, and then from there we're going to get back into the book of Hebrews. I want to begin by telling you uh, kind of a little bit more about myself as I get to know you all. Uh, when I was in high school, I was in one-act play. I loved the theater. I loved acting. I enjoyed all of that uh, part of the high school uh, extracurricular activity. And I remember one year we did this play uh, called You Can't Take It With You. You Can't Take It With You. And it was a play specifically about a dysfunctional family. Now, some of us just got done with Thanksgiving and we're like, yeah, dysfunctional family. I understand what you mean by that. And this family had some dysfunction in it in this play that we did. In fact, I played a, a, a character by the name of Mr. DePena. Mr. DePena was an ice man. Uh, he delivered ice. And one day he delivered ice to this home and he met the son-in-law. And him and the son-in-law became good friends. And he actually uh, began to, they, they started a business together, the son-in-law and he did. And they lived in the basement, basically, of the house. And their their business was that they uh, they sold fireworks. They made and sold fireworks. That was their business, Right. And, and uh, it, I remember, like, we would be down there in the basement doing fireworks stuff, and then everybody would be up there, and dysfunction in the family was going crazy, and we're like, well, we're going to go back to the basement. And let's be honest, right? Uh, we all have that one kind of family member that we kind of wish just stayed in the basement. You know what I'm talking about? Like, that one guy that we were, or, or, or aunt or uncle, we're like, ah, just a little bit out there for us, you know. Why don't you hang out in the basement? Uh, some of us, uh, since Christmas is coming upon us, we, you know, we all have that kind of that Uncle Eddie. You know what I'm talking about? Uncle Eddie from uh, from Christmas Vacation. Or we have the Uncle Fester. I knew the Wednesday thing came out. Or some of us have that Buddy the Elf uncle. Okay, I know. Maybe that's a bit too far, right? Some of, who wouldn't want an uncle that puts syrup and candy all over their spaghetti can down a two liter of cola and burp for like 30 seconds. Like that's the kind of uncle that we want to have. But the reality is we all have kind of that one person in our family that, you know, kind of brings some dysfunction to the family. And if you're sitting there and you're wondering right now, like, man, who is that in our family? Uh, my friend Nathan once said, if you don't know who the crazy uncle is, I hate to tell you, but you're him. Okay. But the reality is that dysfunction happens in a family. Dysfunction happens in a family because we are dysfunctional people. Uh, we have sin in our lives. So it doesn't matter what your family background looks like. It doesn't matter how good your family background is or how bad your family background is. All of us as human beings are born with sin and sin brings dysfunction into our relationships. It brings dysfunction into every relationship we have. Relationship with our parents. Relationship with our siblings, even relationship with our spouse, with our aunts and with our uncle. And so sin has crept in and causes dysfunction. But, but I want to show you this morning through the genealogy of Jesus. I want to show you that, that Jesus' genealogy, what he came from, like the, if you look, you, you go back to see his great grandfathers and great grandmothers, when you go back all the way to Abraham, I want you to see that, well, Jesus understands. Jesus came from a very dysfunctional family line. I'm going to introduce you to a few of them this morning. But here's what I want to show you. In our dysfunction, what can be done? Because of the sin in our lives that brings dysfunction and disruption to our relationships, 
what can be done. And the good news of our Advent series is that Jesus came to do something about our dysfunction. And so today, through this sermon of these 17 verses of Jesus' genealogy, I'm going to show you three reasons why Jesus took on flesh. Three reasons that God sent His Son for our dysfunction as human beings. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through this text of Scripture for you. Uh, And here's the deal. This is a genealogy. So a genealogy is a bunch of names. Who's father of who and who's father of who. And typically in the Christian community, especially in the, uh, the American Christian community, we typically kind of skim over genealogies if we even read them at all. But I want you to see this morning that even the genealogy of Jesus has some really good teaching and theology for us, specifically on why Jesus was born, why the Son of God was born on that day in the manger. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to tell you, I'm going to read through it, and I want you to highlight some words that you can come and look back on later. I don't have time to dive into all the genealogy of Jesus, because we would be here all day if we went through every storyline. But there's some ones that I want you to mark, if you mark in your Bible as we read through this. Now, key here, pastoral advice for you. Uh, Wednesday night, our ladies MC will be meeting, and I know they're going to be doing some rapping, and maybe they'll talk about the sermon. And so if you're the woman that gets called on to read Matthew 1 through through 17, I'm here to help you this morning. And what I mean by that is this is how you read genealogies. If you're ever asked to read a genealogy in public, this is how you do it. You do it with two ways. You ready? You do it quickly and with confidence. Because the reality is, is that if you go quickly, they're not going to know that you missaid a name. And if you say it with confidence, then they're going to be like, oh, they must know the way that the the name is actually supposed to be pronounced. All right, so quickly with confidence, here we go. And I'll tell you where to underline. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Underline that word Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So underline by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Ruth, underline Boaz by Ruth. And Boaz, the father of Obed, or excuse me, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, underline Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, underline that. And Solomon, the father of Reboam, and Reboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, underline Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, underline Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconi, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, underline deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconi was the father of Shatil, and Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elakim, and Elakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Iliud, and Iliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Underline the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Underline Christ. So all the generations, 
from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, underline Christ, 14 generations. We made it. Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Now, this is really important for us to grasp as we begin to talk about our Advent series. Matthew uh, begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus because most likely Matthew is writing to a group of Jewish people, a group of Israelites. And in Israel's time, uh, the genealogy was very important for the people of Israel because the, the people of Israel, through their genealogies, would determine who was a part of Abraham's lineage. And so it was a really big deal. And so Matthew, he's saying, I I need to show you as as Jewish people, I'm going to point you to understand that out of all that God did in the Old Testament, Jesus is the Christ that the Old Testament foretold of. So when God told Abraham and Abraham in Genesis 13, when he said, out of you, all the nations are going to be blessed, that conversation, that promise that God made to Abraham was pointing us to Jesus. When we read Isaiah 9 or we read other parts of the prophetic literature that that the Messiah would come and be born of a virgin, that he would be the suffering servant, all those Old Testament passages were designed to point the people of God to Jesus. And so what Matthew does under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit by God is Matthew ties the Old Testament into Jesus in this, at the beginning of the New Testament. This is so amazing. There is no logical inconsistencies in God. That God from Genesis 1-1 all the way even to Matthew chapter 1. That God can orchestrate and work history in such a way that he can bring about his intended purpose and plan in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you thankful that we serve a God with that kind of power and authority and no inconsistencies? That, like when we believe as Christians that God is perfect, we really mean that he is perfect. And I know that people today, when we talk to them about the gospel, when we talk to them about Jesus, they're like, oh, what about all those inconsistencies in Scripture? And I want to be like, ah, you're missing the God of Scripture if you think there's inconsistencies. Because there is no inconsistencies in God. In fact, God can take things from all the way back from Abraham and bring about, in that genealogy, bring about all the way to Jesus the Christ. The reality is that if there is an inconsistency of Scripture, it's not an inconsistency with Scripture or with the God of Scripture. The inconsistency is with us. That we are dysfunctional people, we are dysfunctional people, dysfunctional beings trying to understand a perfect and infinite God as revealed in His Word. And so there is no inconsistencies and illogic with God. But also what we see Matthew doing is Matthew is pointing us to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I I hate to tell you this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's who he is. It's what it's what it's it's Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. And so three times in verse one, Jesus is the Christ in verse 16, who is called Christ. And at the end of verse 17 to the Christ, Matthew is making the statement that in the Old Testament, the the promised anointed one, the Messiah, who the who the Jewish people were looking for over and over again, he's saying he's here and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah that the Old Testament foretold of. And so you should embrace him as the savior of the world. So the question becomes then, what are the three things we can take away from Jesus taking on flesh? How does Jesus 
the incarnation, the advent, Jesus coming to earth, how does that take care of our dysfunction as sinners? Well, three reasons. Reason number one. Reason number one that God sent Jesus to earth. You ready? It's really theologically easy. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. That was the purpose, the reasoning for Jesus' coming. And when we look back through Jesus' genealogy, we're going to see some sinners. Now, I don't have time to go through all of them today, so I've selected three to show you how Jesus comes to, from this lineage to save sinners. And there are sinners all the way through his genealogy up until you get to him. The first one I want to show you is Abraham. Verse 2, we see Abraham here who's the father of Isaac. Now, Abraham is the patriarch of Israel. He, he was the main guy. Everybody looked back to Abraham. When God calls Abram out, uh, he says, Out of you, I'm going to make you into a multi, many nations. But Abraham had some sin in his life. Like, we like to think of Father Abraham and the faith that he had. But, and he is a part of the, the Hebrews 11, the faith. But, but Abraham also shows some sinful signs. For example, uh, when Abraham is traveling, he has Sarah, his wife, with him. And he makes a deal with Sarah. He says, hey, every time we travel through some of these kind of darker cultures, some of these cultures that are a little bad, he says, I don't want to get killed for you. Because you're beautiful, and I've outkicked my coverage, as Kyle likes to say in our office, right? And so he says, I've outkicked my coverage, and so you need to tell people that you're my sister, so they won't kill me to take you. Let me give you a little marriage advice. Like, that's a compliment, but not a good compliment, right? Like, man, you're really pretty. Tell everybody you're my sister, so nobody tries to steal you from me, okay? Uh, not the best, best thing, you shouldn't put that on a Hallmark, you know, anniversary card. It's like my one friend used to say, he's like, oh, you have the prettiest green eyes that remind me of pond scum. All right, that's not a good, that's not, that's a compliment, but it's not a good compliment. Like, all right, man, there's other ways that we can get better at that. But he was like, don't tell people that you're my, my wife. And one guy actually takes him and, and God punishes him and says, don't, don't take Sarah as your wife. She belongs to Abraham. And God protected Abraham even in his lying. But the reality is, how many of us in this room are liars? Yeah, if you didn't raise your hand, that's you. You just, you literally just lied in that moment. Like we, we have a propensity towards, towards not telling the truth because we don't want to deal with the consequences of the truth. So Abraham in his fear, not in his faith, Abraham says, lie to them. Don't tell them the truth they're my wife because I am afraid of the consequences of what's going to happen to me if they find out you're my wife. And so the reality is that all of us, and I'm going to argue that every single person leading up to Jesus has sin. We are by nature children of wrath. We are born into sin. And so therefore, every single one of us deserves condemnation. Not to mention Abraham. Uh, when Abraham uh, is waiting for God's promise to occur. So God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son, Isaac. But how many times do you ever realize that God never works in our own timing? If you haven't figured that out, let me just tell you, give you a little help on the spiritual side of Christianity. God never works in your timing. He always works in his, right? If you're a Christian for longer than a decade, say amen to that. You know what I'm talking about. And Abraham was like, okay, we're supposed to be having this son. Sarah's like, we're supposed to be having this son, but he ain't coming. So let's do this. Let's take matters into our own hands. Let me just tell you something, Christian. When you begin to take matters into your own hands, things typically don't work out well for you. 
And it didn't work out well for Abraham either. So she says, here, Sarah says, here, take my maidservant Haggai, and you have, a, you have a baby with her, and then we'll take that, and that'll kind of be the start of this whole nation. And over time, God does protect Haggai and, and all the different things, but, but Abraham sins against God. He didn't trust in God's promises. And so the reality is that Jesus' background is filled with sinners like you and me. But the good news is that when we look and see Jesus as the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Christ, I want you to know that Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. He came to save us from our lying. He came to save us from our our lack of faith and not trusting in Him. That is the very reason that Jesus came, is Jesus came to save us from our sins, just like the sins that we commit against Abraham, or the, the sins that we commit just like Abraham does. The next one I want to show you, I was going to show you Tamar, but you can read her later. But for the sake of time, I want to show you my man David. Uh, David and I have, I, I tell people all the time that if I was ever uh, put on a desert island and told you can only have one book of the Bible, it would be 1 Samuel, hands down. Just let me read about David over and over again. Me and David, we have a lot in common. We are both the worship warrior. All right. And so I love the, the David. But look at David's, look at David's sins here. It says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, who is that? Her name is Bathsheba. Uriah was a Hittite. Uriah was married to Bathsheba. And while Uriah was out at war, David, who was supposed to be out at war with his people, he was king at the time, he's not. Instead, he's hanging out at his temple, at his house, at his palace. And he goes out on the roof and he sees Uriah's wife bathing. And so he calls her in and they commit adultery together. She ends up getting pregnant, coming to David, says, I'm pregnant with your baby. And so David's like, okay, well, let's cover this sin up because that's what we do, right? As sinful people, we try to just cover the sin up with as best we can. We're like, we're like Adam and Eve. When we sin, we just cover ourselves with fig leaves. And God's like, that doesn't work. That's not how it works. Just try to close your eyes and pretend, God, you can't see me. Hide behind the tree. But the reality is we try to cover our sin just like David does. And so David, he tries to cover his sin. So he brings Uriah back from the battlefront. He tells Uriah to go home and be with his wife, trying to say that, if he goes and be with the wife, then that would, he would pretend that that was Uriah's baby. But Uriah is a good soldier. I think he's a good Marine. Honestly, if you want to think about it in that terms. He's like, I'm not going to go home if, and be with my wife and my family if all of my men can't go home and be with their wives and their family. That's a leader. Like, Uriah, you're the man. And so, God, so David says, well, that didn't work. Plan B. Confess. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what he did. Instead, he signs a death warrant to Uriah and he hands it to him. And Uriah takes his death warrant. Who he does, Uriah doesn't know that the death warrant is in his hand. And he gives it to the general. And the general reads what David wrote. And David said to the general, he says, put Uriah at the front lines. Where the fighting is the worst. And when Uriah gets to kind of the tip of the fighting, pull everybody back so he dies. And that's exactly what he does. And so we see here both sexual immorality in David, but we also see murder in David as well. So my question is, does David have the ability to be saved? Well, the answer to that question is yes. David ends up writing one of the greatest psalms of the Psalter, which is Psalm 51. When Nathan the prophet confronts him, David repents. David turns from sin and then he goes and he runs and he clings to God. He clings to, in our case, clings to Jesus. And he says, make me as white as snow. Wash me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And that's exactly why Jesus came. 
Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. But here's the thing you have to understand. Listen to me, church. No one, no one is outside of God's grasp and salvation. Somebody should have said amen right there. No one, no sin is too far beyond God's forgiveness. Now, there is consequences for sin. David had a lot of consequences for his sin that we read about. That's why I don't like 2 Samuel. I wish it wasn't in there. Because 2 Samuel, David's life comes crumbling down because of his great sins. But the reality is, while sin has consequences, Jesus came to forgive us of all our sins. Listen, I used to have people tell me all the time, when I was pastor in South Carolina, I would, I would go out and tell people to invite people to the church. And they'd be like, oh, no, I can't come because I'm too bad. If I walked in, the church building would collapse because of how bad I am. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Jesus came for you. And when you come to Jesus, there is singing and there is rejoicing over one who was lost but has now become saved. But I think sometimes, church, we miss that, don't we? Sometimes we think, oh, look at how bad those people are. Look at how sinful those people are. They're beyond salvation because of their, their great and multitude of sins. Can I challenge you this Christmas to fight against that? Because Jesus just didn't come for the righteous. He came for the unrighteous. He didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. And if you read through the New Testament, who are the first people that always repent and respond to Jesus? They are the outcasts. They are the broken. And they are the most sinful. Because when they meet Jesus, they're like, oh my goodness, all this that I've ever done can be cleansed. And there's hope in him. And they cling to him just like that. The point that we can see here is that Jesus came to save sinners and he came to save even the worst of all sinners. As I was preparing this sermon, I was thinking about one of our, uh, our sisters in the faith. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, if you're interested in ever reading her stuff, she wrote a book called The, Unlikely, or the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I got, had a chance to sit under her teaching uh, at Southeastern a couple of years ago at a converse, casual conversation coffee talk. And I remember listening to Rosaria's testimony. And she made this testimony. So she was, in, she was uh, in a life of sexual immorality. And it was bad. Like she embraced it. Uh, she, she yelled it from the rooftops. Like this is who I am. This is how I want to live. I, I'm going to live this way because this is how I, what I feel is right. And so she was actually a, an English scholar. And so she was going to come, like most people do, and disprove the Bible. So she's like, well, I'm going to I'm going to disprove everything in Scripture. I'm going to look at it from a literary context and I'm going to prove that this whole thing is not true. So she starts to read the Bible and she's like, I don't know how to read this thing. So she gets to a local pastor and a local pastor begins to sit down, him and his wife, and begins to share the scriptures with Rosaria. And over time, what does God do? God reveals his plan of salvation in Jesus to her heart. She repents of her sexual immorality she clings to Jesus, and now she's one of our greatest witnesses about the gospel and the grace of Christ. And I remember sitting there listening to her story, and she said this, and I thought, oh, if only the church would grasp that. She's sitting at the, at the table with a couple of our, our professors, and she said, she said, let me just tell everybody in this room one thing. She said, Jesus did not just save me from a life of sexual immorality. She said, Jesus saved me from all my sins. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, that is what Jesus is still in the business of doing. Because that is the reason he came. He came to save us of all of our sin. Yes, sin manifests itself in us in different ways. 
But if you're here this morning, listen to me. Jesus loves you so much that you are not outside of the bounds of his grace. No matter how bad you've done, no matter what you've done, Jesus can and will save you. If you do like David and like Rosaria Butterfield, if you repent of sin and you trust in Jesus. That's why he came. He came to save sinners just like you and me. But lastly, I want to show you Jesus, how Jesus does this. Verse 16, we see in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Now, Mary, I mean, Mary's the mother of Jesus. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. She is engaged to Joseph. And come to find out, Mary gets pregnant. And she's a virgin who gives birth to Jesus. Now, Biologically, that makes no sense, right? And to the people, it made no sense. Even Joseph, when he finds out Mary is pregnant with a child, he's like, ah, she's been unfaithful. I'm just going to divorce her quietly and just walk away from this. And then the angel comes and like, hey, don't worry about it. She hasn't been unfaithful. In fact, she's a virgin and God's son is in her womb. Why is that important? Well, because that's the way that Jesus saves us from our sin. Jesus is born of a virgin because in the person of Jesus, you have really what we call two essences. We have two substances that come together in the person of Jesus. We have his deity and we have his humanity. In other words, we have his fullness of God, but we also have the fullness of man that are united in the person of Jesus. Why is that important, brothers and sisters? Well, because that's how Jesus saves us from our sin. Because Jesus has no sin... That's his deity on display. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is fully God in the flesh. And as a as a a, uh, as Jesus is fully God in the flesh, that means he has no sin and he doesn't commit sin so that the humanity side can step in. And the humanity side says, now I'm going to be the sacrifice for all human beings. You see, what we needed is we needed a sinless sacrifice and in The person of Jesus, we see both the sinless side of him and his deity, but we also see the sacrifice that he makes for humanity in his humanity. So we call the incarnation. Now, I understand you're probably sitting here thinking, I don't understand how that makes sense. I understand that too. There is a lot of mystery surrounding the incarnation. But the point is that that is a truth we believe. And that is the reason we believe this is because of the virgin birth. And so Jesus takes on flesh fully God and fully man, so that he can be our sinless sacrifice. So that it says in Isaiah, he can be our suffering servant. That is how Jesus saves us from all our sin. He took our place. If you want to know the most simple form of the gospel, is he took your place. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why we sing about the resurrection. Because that is our hope that Jesus can save us from our sin. That is our hope That Jesus can change our lives and help us to recover and pursue his design for us. So that's the first thing. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Number two. Jesus is the righteous, just, and loving king we desire. Jesus is the righteous, just, and loving king we desire. Now if you look at verse 17. 17 divides these passages, the genealogies, into three different parts. The first part is from Abraham to David. And that goes in verse 2 all the way down to 6a when we get to David the king. 
But then we have the kings, which is David to the Babylonian captivity, which is 6b all the way to verse 11. And then from there, we get the Babylonian captivity, excuse me, which is verses 12 through 16. Now, why does the genealogy of Jesus have this section of kings in it? Well, I believe that the kings of the Old Testament are designed to point us to the king that we need. The kings of the Old Testament were not perfect. Now, did some of them do really good things for God? Yes. Some of them did some really evil things as well. And in all of those stories that we read, if you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, you will see that the people are like, we need a better king. Because these guys aren't working out. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, well, I I am that king. I am what the Bible calls the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I am perfect. I am righteous. I am just. I am loving. I am everything that you need in a king. So what I did this week as I was studying is I went through and I read 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, all the kings of Judah. And I, I really put together this really complex rubric for determining which kings were good and which kings were bad. So it was a grading system that I put on the kings as I read through them, okay? And this is the grading rubric. Are you ready? Put on your thinking hats because it's going to be really complicated. I gave them X's and check marks. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. So some of you are smiling, but like, uh, is that really a joke? Yes, that's a joke. So I did, I did X's and I did check marks looking at the kings. And if you, you got a big fat X in my Bible, if you were a king, and, the, and, the, and I'm reading your story, and the Bible records that, and, they, and this man did evil in the sight of the Lord. That was an indicator that you were an X king, okay? You were not good. And then I have a few check marks. So let me give you, a, let me give you my grading scale here. Solomon, I gave a check. Uh, Reboam, I gave an X. Abijah, I gave a question mark because there was times that he was good. There was times he was bad, so I didn't know where to put him. So I could give him a check or an X. Uh, Asaph, I gave a check. Jehoshaphat, I gave a check. Joram, I gave an X. Uzziah, I gave a check. Jotham, I gave a check. Ahaz got an X. Hezekiah got a check. I almost gave him a check plus, but I didn't want to ruin my grading rubric. Manasseh got an X. He almost got an X plus because he is bad. All right. Uh, Amos got a big X. Josiah gets a check. I almost gave him a check plus. And then Jeconiah and his brothers, they all got X's. But even in the guys that got check marks, man, they weren't the best kings either. Take Solomon, for example. Here is this wise king. He builds the temple that David, his dad, wanted to build. He does some really cool stuff for God. But yet, he has an Achilles heel, and that is foreign women. And in his foreign women, they lead him towards idolatry. And he begins to bring idols into Israel that don't ever really typically leave and the other kings pick up. And so Solomon was a good king, but he wasn't a king that we needed. The idea of the kings of Scripture is that it's designed to point us to a greater king. So we're asking the question, who is that king? And when Jesus comes to earth, he explains, it's me. I'm that king. I'm the king that is here to now usher in my kingdom through me. I am the shepherd. I am the door that you enter to get to my kingdom. And I am a good, righteous, just, loving. I am a great king. Because all these kings left you hungry. All these kings could never satisfy what only I could satisfy. Think of it this way, perhaps. All right. How many of you in the room, like you destroyed Thanksgiving? I mean, you, you're, if you watch Do Perfect and you were like the overeater of Cody, you're like, that's me. I mean, I, I weighed myself this morning. It's like three pounds over. I'm like, oh, no. Next week is going to have to be a serious workout. 
intermittent fasting, which we just mean miss breakfast. You know, like all that stuff. Right? Like it's, it's got to drop some pounds. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry if you're like a workout fan. But, but in other words, what happened? So if you overate Thanksgiving, we were like, man, I ate so much, I'm never going to be hungry again. Like, I am not going to be hungry for the rest of the week because I ate so much. Is that typically what happens? No, what typically happens? After you overeat, like five hours later, what does your body say? I'm kind of hungry again. You're like, wait a minute. I just fed you ham, turkey, mac and cheese, stuffing, mashed potatoes. And then I went to the dessert table and I went with cookies and cherry pie and chocolate pie. And I kind of meshed them together. There is no way, body, that you are hungry. I just fed you. But over time, what happens? Over time, our body says, no, I'm still hungry. The reality is that food is a reminder of the king's. That even though it's satisfied for the moment, it still left us wanting more. It still left us hungry. And the, the kings of the Old Testament left the people hungry for a new king, for a better king. And in steps Jesus. And he says, I'm the king that will completely satisfy you. And I am the, the king that you can follow with trust with your life. Because I rule you with love, justice, goodness, and righteousness. What does that mean to follow that kind of king? The king that says, I make all things new, including you. Listen, I know that Christmas, I'm a Christmas fan. So, man, we didn't even have Thanksgiving done and we already have the Christmas tree up. You know, we've watched Santa Claus 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I'm getting ready to watch Christmas Carol. You know, all the good stuff. But how often does Christmas really start to set up the idols of our hearts? Our consumerist Christmas mentality starts to build those idols and say, well, actually, these things is what I want to worship today. These, this family is what I worship today. I want to worship my children in this moment. And, th- and I'm not saying that gifts and family and children are bad. They're not. But sometimes those things can become idols in which we replace the king and worship the creation. And so one of the things that I want you to process and pray about as, as Advent comes into the, into the mix, as we get ready to launch into this Christmas season, one of the things I wanted you to pray and fight against is say, God, put yourself as the king of my heart this Christmas. Don't make it about worshiping gifts or family or children or days off or hunting or whatever the case may be. I'm talking to myself here. Make this an opportunity where I worship you. And out of my worship, you, I do all those other things. Ask yourself the question that, is Jesus the king of your heart? Because if Jesus is the king of your heart, then you have been given the greatest gift and need of all. And your needs have been fulfilled in him. The idea is that all those other things are like the kings of the Old Testament. They will never satisfy you. Because only Jesus has the ability to satisfy your life. Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we long and wait for our king's return. But until then, we live for him until that return. We worship him fully until that return. Number three, and lastly, Jesus is not only the one who saves us from our sins. Jesus is not only the king that we needed, but Jesus is also the king who extends his kingdom to the nations. That's the number three. Jesus is the king who extends his kingdom to the nations. In this text, 
we're introduced to a few what we would call Gentiles. And this is really interesting. I think God in his sovereignty put some Gentiles in Jesus' genealogy to show us that his kingdom extends to all peoples, not just one people. The first one that you see here, I'm going to go through them quickly. The first one you see here is Rahab. Rahab was from Jericho. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho and she saved the spies. And in this, she is actually hit in the hall of faith. Hebrews 11, she's also hit in James over and over talking about her faith in hiding the spies. And the reason that she hid the spies is because she believed in the God who was coming. She believed that God was going to come and she's like, hey, don't destroy me with all of Jericho because I believe in this God that is come, that you're coming in his name, Israel. And what ends up happening is they end up saving her and all of her family and she becomes a part of the faith. And so Rahab is from Jericho and Rahab is in Jesus's genealogy. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come for the people of Israel. He came for all the nations, including the Rahabs. Number two, look at look at with me, Ruth. There's a whole Old Testament book dedicated to Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Now, Moabite culture was pretty dark. Like if you kind of do some study on Moabite culture, it was Moab. That was it was a dark, dark culture. And she comes out of that dark culture. She is redeemed by Boaz, which is a, a pointing of the gospel. Gospel. Jesus redeems us to Himself and brings us into by a part of His family. And Ruth is a Moabite who becomes a part of Jesus's genealogy. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that Jesus has called us. If he is our king, he has called us to extend his kingdom to the nations. And the nations are represented in his genealogy with Rahab and with Ruth. But also look at verses 12 through 16. We also have the deportation to Babylon. And this was a punishment. Israel was punished to go to Babylon. But in Babylon, what are they told to do over and over again? To seek the welfare of their city. To make it prosper. To live out their faith in a very dark Culture. They are designed in that moment of punishment to be lights shining in a very dark world. Once again, symbolizing for us that Jesus' kingdom extends to the ends of the earth. So when Jesus comes from heaven, it is a missions trip. If you want to think of it that way. Jesus was sent by God to us in order to save us through himself. And as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, you and I are called to do the same. You and I are called to mimic Jesus by going to the Rahabs, by going to the Moabs, by living in our Babylons as light shining in a dark world. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I get it. It's hard in our culture today in America, is it not? Some of you who are a little older than me, y'all are like, oh my goodness. I can't believe the things that we're having to deal with today. As parents, trust me, we're dealing with it. I was watching the news with my father-in-law and we were watching the news and he's like, oh my goodness, is there anything? There's, there's, it's like every single day there's more and more bad stuff. There's more and more darkness. There's more and more problems. And so I get it. We, we can live in a state of fear. But Jesus shows us that we're not to live in a state of fear, that we're to live in a state of faith. And what I mean by that is when we look around us and our culture is dark, like Babylon, our culture is dark, like the early church in Rome. I want you to understand something. Jesus came to save all the nations. And so the way he does that is he puts his people in the nations to get them Jesus. So I like to say this. 
In cultures that are the darkest, I believe that is where the gospel shines the brightest. So in our culture that's growing more and more dark and and the sinfulness of man is becoming more and more seen, let me tell you something, it is an opportunity for Christians. It's an opportunity for Christians to point people to the light who came to push back the darkness. And his name is? You are with me. And what does he call us to do? Jesus says, go and therefore and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, we are to take the Christ to the Rahabs. We are to take the Christ to Ruth and the Moabites. We are to take the Christ to Babylon's of our world. Because Jesus didn't just come to save Israel. He came to save all people. His kingdom came to extend the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And the way he does that is through us. I was reading a book uh, a couple years ago by, called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. And I love this book by Nick. Uh, Nick was talking about how he was, he's working with the missionary agency. And the missionary agency says, well, tell us about your calling. Tell us about your calling to go to the nations. And he says, well, I just read the Bible. And I'm like, no, 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 well, no, 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 what? So yeah, I got to that Matthew 28 section where it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I'm like, okay, well, I need to go therefore and make disciples of all nations because that's what my king told me to do. And they're like, no, that's not a missionary story. You, you, you have to have some different calling. He's like, no, I'm just obeying God's word. Brothers and sisters, during this Christmas season, I want to encourage you this season to, to also obey God's word. Ask yourself, are you willing to put your yes on the table? This Christmas, ask God. Say, God, I know that you sent Jesus. I want you to know I'm putting my yes on the table. Send me. Oh, that's a big ask, huh? Send me. Where would you have me go? What would you have me do? Begin to pray now, brothers and sisters at Center Church. Begin to pray now because our, our value is we want to commission every partner. That means that we are asking God right now that you are praying to say maybe you will be a part. You will uproot your family and you'll go be part of our next church plant within the next five years. Or maybe within the next five years you will be called out to the mission field. So that we can get the gospel to as many people as possible. Because as you're going to see at the end of our Advent series. Our king is one day going to return. In fact in the Revelation he says. John says come Lord Jesus. And so we want to say come Lord Jesus. But listen brothers and sisters. Before our king returns. Let's get Jesus to as many people as possible. Because Jesus is not just for one nation. Jesus is for all nations. And we see that even in his genealogy. Are you willing to put your yes on the table? To go wherever God calls you to go and to do whatever God tells you to do. Let me take a moment here to speak to our young people in this room. Our young adults and our young children and students. Let me speak to you for a moment. I want to challenge you all. I want to challenge you to take, to say, what is your passion? What is your gifting? What is your talent? What has God put upon your heart? And then what I want you to do is I want you to ask God, God, how can I do that in such a way that I can advance your kingdom? What I mean by that, let's say some of you in this room, you're like, hey, I want to be a teacher. I want to teach. Well, then I would encourage you to ask God to go to school, get your teaching certificate, and then go teach overseas. Go set up and start a school over there and teach them how to read. And guess what? You have a book right here you can start with. If you're in here and you're like, well, you know what? Maybe, Jeremy, I want to be a business person. I want to really get into business. Well, then I encourage you, go to college, get your MBA, and then go overseas and start a business. 
And use your business as a means to do missions. Use your business as a means to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus never said it was going to be easy following him. He said the cost is great. So I encourage you young people, go. Go and use your lives for the glory of God to extend his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. Is our yes on the table? Are we willing to go where Jesus tells us to go and do what he tells us to do, even if that means costing us our lives or our families? Because I believe when we look at Jesus' kingship and we look at the extension of his kingdom to the nations, when we look at Rahab and Ruth and Babylon, I believe that our heart and our passion should be to get Jesus to as many people as possible before he returns. So how do you respond to a message like this today? Four ways. Number one, ask God this year, ask God this year, say, God, help me to be thankful this Christmas season for the gift of your son. Let that gift be greater than any gift that I get this Christmas season. Help me to be thankful. Pray and say, God, help me to be thankful that you sent Jesus to save me from my sin. But then turn around and say, God. How can I take this gift and give it to others? Evangelism, do I need to be doing that more here in Brenham or in my school or in my business? Or maybe, God, are you calling me in the next couple of years to plant a church? Are you calling me to take the gospel to the nations? Number three, I want you to pray and ask God. Say, God, ask God, say, God, please, please help Me from putting any idols on top of you this year. Be the king of my heart through this entire holiday season. And then lastly, if you're here this morning and you're like, Jeremy, this Jesus sounds amazing. I want you to know he is. You're sitting here and you're saying, Jeremy, can I be really, you really said that he can forgive me of all my sins. Do you really mean that? Yes, I do, because the Bible says it very clearly. And if you're here today, you're like, I'm ready to repent of my sin like David and turn my life to Jesus. Then after this service is over, I want you to come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Kyle. Come talk to one of our partners and say, hey, how do, how do I do this? What's my next steps in being this follower of Jesus that Jeremy just talked about? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to give you three minutes just to close your eyes, bow your heads, and just spend a few moments with God. It's going to be a busy season. So take right now, just take a moment of solitude and say, Lord, speak to me from what I just learned from your word. Father, I don't know how you're dealing with the people in this room today. 
I know that you deal with me as I study your word and over and over again. I'm just reminded and appreciative that you sent your son to save me from my sin. All of it. All of it. And Lord, I, I, I relate with Paul where I say that I'm the chief of all sinners in this room. But I'm thankful for the grace that you've given me in Christ and every single person in this room who calls you their father. Father, I pray for us that this Christmas consumerist culture that we live in would not become an idol, would not produce the idol of our hearts. But even through all of this, as we think about Jesus' coming and return, Lord, may you be the, the king who sits on the throne of our hearts through it all. Help us to be thankful this Christmas season as we think about the greatest gift. And that is your son. He is greater than anything else in this world. Any relationship, any material gain, any wealth, any health, Jesus is greater. He took care of our greatest need, which is our sin. And Father, I pray today, if there's one in this room that doesn't know you, that you would convict them. You give them courage through your spirit to trust in you and your work this morning. To trust in Jesus who you sent. And to recover and pursue your design for their lives. Lord, we cannot cover our sin. But Lord, you cover the sin with the blood of Jesus to forgive us and make us new. So Father, let us use this time now as we come to the communion table. Let us use this as a time to remember the greatest gift that we have this Christmas season is Jesus, your son. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.